are going to push the pause button one more time on our study of the Sermon on the Mount. I know that some of you completers are like, can we just get it done already? Well, in light of everything that's going on this week, I thought it would be wise for us to go ahead and take some time to study God's Word in such a way that we're reminded of who is in charge. But what I want you to do this morning as we're going through this passage is I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be challenged. I want you to be excited because as you're going out into the workplace, as you're going off to campus, if you're going around school, wherever you're going to be this week, there are going to be people who are going to be upset. Okay, no matter how Tuesday goes, no matter what all goes on with life in general, there are going to be people who are going to have a very difficult week ahead of them. So what I want us to do is to be so equipped and so steady that no matter what happens, no matter how things go or what we see God do in the days ahead, that we can be able to point people to who is actually in charge in the middle of all of this. Now, Isaiah 40 is one of my favorite chapters. It goes back to when I was a kid and you used to have those cloth Bible covers. Some of you guys still do, but I remember I had this cloth Bible cover that had an eagle on it and Isaiah 40, 31 embroidered on the cover of it, you know. It goes back a long time for me, but as we're looking at this particular chapter, it's a tremendous reminder to us of who this God is that we serve. And my hope and my prayer and my challenge for you is rest in these truths. Grab a hold of them. Get excited about the God that we serve so that no matter what happens in the days, weeks, and months to come, whether we're talking the election or anything else that's going on in life, you can find joy and hope and excitement in the midst of all of it. Does that make sense? You guys with me? All right. So with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 open here, my computer is, or my tablet is being really slow to open it, which makes it even more exciting this morning than it normally would. As we're looking at this, what we're going to do is look at the context of what's going on. I told you before, it's always essential for us to make sure that we are paying attention to what's going on around the passage that we're looking at. The, as we're looking at it this morning, we're picking up at the end of a section where Isaiah has just been telling God's people that after King Hezekiah's death, they would be facing exile and judgment for the fact that they continually refused to honor God for who he was, okay? We'd seen over and over again, God had told his people how they were supposed to behave, who they were supposed to be, and how they were supposed to act. And yet, time and time again, they neglected that, and they refused to do what God had called them to do and stopped being who he was calling them to be. In the process, God said that he was going to judge the people. They were going to go into exile. But as we're starting off in verse, excuse me, chapter 40, verse 1, we're seeing that he is bringing us back to where he has taken the folks, and they've gone into exile, and he's encouraging them about what will take place after the exile. So as we're looking at whatever's going to happen over the next few weeks, we have the privilege then of being able to look back and see the comfort that God gave his people. We see who's in charge. So start with me in verse 1 here, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So again, this is looking forward to the time after the exile when God's people are looking forward to being restored and God's pointing to them, 
about who he is and all he's done. And apparently, either the internet is down or Microsoft is down. So I'm working hard on getting a copy of my sermon notes where I can use it. Jamie, I actually just got it pulled up. But thank you for being ready and willing. All right? Y'all all right? Last week, I tried printing them out, and that didn't work. This week, I thought, well, I'll use all of these wonderful tools that I have, you know, that you know, can help me to be able to get these things through the Internet like I've been normally doing, and I thought, for sure, this would be no problem. I'll get back to what I'm used to doing. But again, even as I've pulled it up on a totally separate app, on a totally separate device, on a totally separate connection, it's still not working. You know what that tells me? God's in charge and I am not. And this is a message we likely need to hear. All right? So as we've started in verses 1 and 2, we've seen God comforting his people. Now, what I want to do is I want us to actually jump down to verse 28, 27 and 28, actually, to give us some context of what's going on as we're looking at it. What we're going to do is we're going to use verse 28 as kind of a springboard verse to go back into the rest of the chapter because it's kind of a summary statement of a lot of the themes that he's already brought up. So what we're going to do is we're going to read 27, 28, and then we're going to go back and pick these things up, all right? Verse 27, Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by God? You ever feel like that, by the way? You ever feel like that God's not paying attention to you and he doesn't see what's going on and and you're just kind of flying under the radar? Why do you say that? Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. By the way, does that sound familiar? We just sang it the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Now, my hope and my prayer is that as you hear God's word today, as you look at this with me, that that's exactly what will happen. As weary as you are about everything that's happened this year, as tired of hearing about politics as you may be, whatever's going on, that you would learn to wait on the Lord and be able to find strength in him, okay? So let's go back to verse 28, and let's pick up about five different truths that we see out of these verses about who this God is. The first thing Isaiah starts us off with is that he is the everlasting God. The everlasting God. Now, some of you start doing Handel's Messiah, the everlasting Father. Right, yeah, okay. We'll get to that later. That's Christmas. We got another month for that, man. As we're starting about this, one of the things I want you to realize, looking back at verse 28, we're not just talking about any God. There's an idea in our world that if you just kind of follow whatever God you want, that you can sort of roll your own God, you know, you can sort of pick from this and pick from that and kind of go cafeteria style. No, when, when Isaiah is pointing us to the God who is in charge, he's pointing us to the Lord. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you'll notice that it's all caps there, that L-O-R-D. That tells us this is talking about the God of Israel. This is not just God. This is specifically the God of Israel. Because, see, in our world, a lot of times, you'll talk to people, a lot of them believe in God. They believe that there is a God. They may believe that there's a heaven. They may even believe that there's a hell. But their idea of God does not align with the God of the Bible. 
The Bible teaches us that there is one true God who has revealed himself throughout history with the name that we usually say is Yahweh. That's the name that he gave to his people. That's the Hebrew behind that capital L-O-R-D that you see there. So he's saying this God, not Baal, not Asherah, not the gods of the Babylonians, not the gods of the Egyptians, this God is the everlasting God. How many of you ever had an everlasting gobstopper? I remember back, there used to be a candy shop in center in the square. I don't know if it's still there, but I remember we took a, a field trip to the science museum one time when I was in elementary school, and they had those gobstoppers that were like, you know, you know, this big around, and you couldn't even get it in your mouth, and it made your jaw hurt for like a week and a half after you tried to use it. it none of those things actually lasted forever, did they? When we say that God is everlasting, that means he always has been, and he always will be. The God that we serve is everlasting. He is the one who always was, the one who was going to restore Israel after the exile, and the one who is still here loving us, saving us, and guiding us today. To see that more clearly, go back to verses 6 and 8. Starting in verse 6, a voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass. And all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but when the breath of the Lord blows on them, indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Now, I helped my brother mow some yards on Fridays. And you know what we started noticing? It's not growing real fast right now. Even though we got a lot of rain, it's gotten cold, and we're watching the grass start to die. Those beautiful flowers, we talked about this a little bit ago. Remember, we used the idea that God clothes the grass of the field as an indication of his care. And we talked about the past nature of flowers that bloom for just a short period of time, and then they die off, and yet God's beauty is reflected in that. Well, we're taking that similar concept of, of the passing of, of flowers and grass, only we're applying it to human life. Here's the picture. In the grand scheme of eternity, you're like a rose that wilts in a matter of days. Boy, aren't you glad you came to church to hear that this morning? You may live 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 120 years. But the reality is, for those of you who are more of advanced age, you know that it seems like that time is shorter and shorter and shorter. The more years go by, the faster they seem to go, and you look back and you remember it feels like just yesterday you were 20 years old in college or whatever you were doing. But some time has passed since then. The Bible says when you look at your life in light of eternity, even in light of human history, it's like grass that withers and the flower that fades. You and I are just passing through. We're here for a very brief time. But the everlasting God and his word remain forever. Keep in mind that in English, a lot of times we've gotten very imprecise in our wording. Like, you know, we said, this is literally the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, it probably isn't. You know, like we, we've generalized the term and we no longer use that to actually mean this literally means this thing. Um, the Bible doesn't do that. When it says forever, it's not talking about a really long time. It's talking about all of the time, forever. 
The God that we serve is the same God who existed in eternity past, who created everything with just speaking it into existence and forming us from the dust. And then he is the God who will exist for all of eternity. Now, as we think about that and this whole idea that we're passing through and just transient and we're like grass that God can simply blow on and we wither, why is that comforting? And how in the world does that help us as we think about the election? Because... Whoever is going to be elected over the next four years is like grass that withers and the flower that fades. In fact, he actually makes that very specific here in just a minute. Think about it. If you fast forward to January and the other guy, whichever one you voted against, right? The other guy won and is inaugurated. Let's, let's run it out and say that worst case scenario, whoever it was that you didn't want to get into office is in office and actually did have a secret plan to overthrow the democracy of the United States and he appoints himself dictator for life, okay? Let's go there and let's say that it's as bad as it could possibly be. They live for maybe 25 years and rule and they die. Let's say that that this throws America into a tailspin and the globe into a tailspin, ushering in another dark ages like the medieval times, right? And for 400 years, science and progress is stymied and all of these things happen. You know what? The everlasting God is still the everlasting God. In the midst of all of these things, paint your worst case scenario and realize No matter how bad it gets, for how long it gets, the God of the universe is still in charge that entire time. So that's why we can vote. And guys, let me be honest with you. Vote your values, okay? Vote what you believe is most God-honoring and will be for the flourishing of the nation. Go to the ballot and take everything you know about who Jesus is with you into that, that voting booth. We know that God is for life. We know that God is for justice. Vote accordingly. Okay? That's the closest you're going to get to me from the pulpit endorsing a candidate. And I still didn't endorse one. You need to do what you believe before God in good conscience is what you believe is best, okay? But however the election turns out, the everlasting God whose word will never fail is still in charge, period. Our hope is not in the presidential election. Our hope is not in the next stimulus relief package. Our hope is not in a vaccine Our hope is not in any of these things. Our hope is in the everlasting God who from eternity past through eternity future is always been in charge. He is the everlasting God. And he said this to his people who were getting ready to face 70 years of having been ripped out of their homeland. If you ever read about the destruction of Jerusalem when the Babylonians came in, it's horrific. The siege lasted so long that people were killing and cooking their own children to eat. Then they would be carried off into exile in a foreign land for 70 years. And yet Isaiah said, comfort my people. He is the everlasting God. Even if we go into exile for 70 years. Okay? He is the one who's in charge. By the way, 
every authority that's over us only rules and reigns because God lets them. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says this, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Going back to Isaiah chapter 40, jump in with me in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundation of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Verse 23, he reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. Yeah, but Sean, if, if, if so-and-so gets in office, do you know what's gonna happen to the Supreme Court? I know that the God of the universe can reduce judges to a wasteland. God's not scared about how the election's gonna go. He is the everlasting God. Verse 24, they are barely planted, talking about princes and judges. They're barely planted, barely stone. Their, hand, their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. When the front moved in, it blew all of my neighbor's leaves into our, the gully next to our house. Every year, I think I'm going to put up an orange construction fence to keep all the leaves over on their side of it. But you know what God says? The princes, the judges of the world, he blows on them, and they blow across your lawn just like that leaf that fell. The most powerful men and women in the world, all God has to do is go, and they wither. We're not afraid of the election. We're not afraid of what's going to happen because we know who is actually in charge. The everlasting God who in Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says this, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Next time you go to wash your hands, which I hope you're doing often in these days, when you go to wash your hands, take just a second there with the water on and let your hands cup some of that water and then turn it. And remember that the Bible says that's what God does. That he channels, takes a king's heart and turns it wherever he wants. Now, we don't understand why God doesn't turn hearts of kings in different ways. We can't always figure out why he's doing that and we would want him to do something different, but we have the underlying assertion and authority that no matter who is in charge in the White House or in the governor's mansion or in Congress or in the Senate or wherever they think that they're in charge, their heart can be turned by God to do what he wants to accomplish. He is the everlasting God. That would be enough and we could stop there, but we're not going to because Isaiah doesn't. Not only is he the everlasting God, he also says that he is the creator of the world. He is the creator of the world. It's a quick statement in verse 28. But all through the chapter, you see that he emphasizes over and over again that he is the God of all creation. Now, I am absolutely obsessed with space and stars and things like this. So this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Look back with me at verse 12. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who's gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on a scale? Stop and think about those pictures for just a minute. Now, they're poetic. You know, we're, this is poetic language, so you want to be careful not to push these. But let's just think about it for just a minute, okay? 
God, we know, exists primarily as spirit. He does not have a physical hand. But the power of God, he is so big that he measures the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. In case you're wondering, I looked it up. According to the USGS, there is an estimated 332,519,000 cubic miles of water on the earth. 332 million miles of water. And Isaiah says he measured it out in the hollow of his hands. Scientists estimate that the observable universe, the part we can see with the best telescopes we've got, is somewhere around 93 billion light years across. 93 billion with a B, light years across. That means traveling at the speed of light it would take you 93 billion years to go from one end to the other. That's just the observable universe. They estimate that the actual size of the universe may be as much as 250 times larger than the observable universe. And it says that God measured that out with the span of his hand. I don't know if you realize it, but like when you walk outside tonight and it's starting to get dusk and you start to see some stars popping up, the first three things you're going to see tonight are not going to be stars. They're actually planets. If you look over to the east, you'll notice right when the, kind of where the moon's coming up. Just above that, you'll see Mars. If you look over to the south, you'll see uh, Saturn and Jupiter right next to it. Jupiter is the second brightest thing in the sky next to the, the moon. And then Saturn is, is just up from it a little bit. I'm, I was blessed to, to get a telescope that I can actually like look at these things now. And last night, I was out on my back deck, and I was able to to take the telescope, and I could see the rings of Saturn 746 million miles away. And God measured it out with the span of his hand. Why do we worry about anything, guys? Why do we get afraid? The creator of the world can do these things. By the way, he talks about measuring the, weighing out the mountains in a really, really rough estimate. If you had a mountain that was 10,000 feet tall, that's cone-shaped and made of solid granite, okay, that's just the best estimate we can come up with, it would weigh, just one, would weigh 3 quadrillion, 670 trillion, 344 billion, 487 million tons. Did you get that? 3 quadrillion tons for one 10,000 foot mountain. There are over a hundred 10,000 foot tall mountains in the Rocky Mountain range alone. And God just puts the dust on a scale. He can weigh the mountains on a balance. Why? Why do I worry? Why do I get upset? Why am I afraid when I claim that the king who's over my life and whose kingdom I'm a part of is the God who measures out the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, the heavens with the span, weighs the dust of of the earth and, and puts the mountains in a balance? Why, why, why do I worry? He's the everlasting God. He's the creator of the entire world. History is littered with powerful kings and impressive empires. Some of you might actually remember your Western Civ class, right? 
And you talked about all of the empires that came and all of the empires that fell and how, you know what's happened through all of that? The creator God of the universe has been in charge throughout every kingdom that's risen and every kingdom that's fallen. He is still in charge. While we sit here worrying and wringing our hands over the future, the God who created the world says that these mighty nations are like a drop in the bucket. Jump down to verse 15. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're considered as a speck of dust on the scales. It's like you were trying to weigh out your coffee in the morning for some of you really frou-frou people who do that. And an extra bean fell on the scale and you go, oh, you flick it off. For some of you, maybe it's that you actually wore your socks when you were trying to weigh and you're like, hey man, every ounce counts, right? God said, the nations of the earth are like that to him. It's like a speck of dust on the scale. God is not concerned. For the people in Isaiah's day facing exile in a hostile nation, this was comfort to them to remind them that God could destroy the Babylonians just as quickly as they would destroy Israel. He had the power to deliver, to save, and do whatever he wants. God is, not in the 2020 sense, but in the actual sense of the word, he is the literal creator of the world. So he's not worried about the election. Now guys, listen. We need to vote. We need to pray. We don't need to worry. You see the difference? Because see, the creator God of the universe, you don't see the difference? That's okay. I don't see it either. (laughs) This is what makes life so much fun. Guys, you don't understand how much fun preaching actually is. You know, a lot of times, if we were honest, that's how we react. I see it. I know it. But I don't get it. That's why I wanted to yell a little bit. That's why I wanted to get excited this morning, because I want you to see in your heart to not be worried, not be troubled. He is the creator of the world. He, the nations are like a drop in a bucket for him. This is no big deal. You know what else is incredible about him? He is never tired. For those of you who are over the age of about 19, you understand how miraculous this is because you are never not tired, right? There's always something that has you exhausted. I woke up the other morning, and I'm not kidding you. I'm only 37 years old. I never played sports growing up, so I don't have like some old you know, football injury that I'm nursing or anything. Every major joint on my body popped for an hour and a half. Anytime I stepped, it was like ankle, knee, hip. I mean, everything just popped. I was exhausted this week. There was a week, there, there were days I just did not feel good. But you know what's incredible? The God of the universe who can measure out the entire thing with the span of his hand never gets tired. Not even a little bit. Verse 28 again. He says, he is the one who never becomes faint or weary. Man, just think about that. Wouldn't that be great? God is always alert and he's always able to do whatever needs to be done. See, Isaiah contrasts that because he's not like the gods that we make up. The gods we make up, he talks about there in verse 18. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol, by the way, this is sarcastic, and it's funny if you really think about it. 
He says this, an idol, something that a smelter casks and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for. A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that it will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. How weak is your God that you got to make sure that the base you set him on doesn't make him fall over? Contrast that with the God who measures out the entire universe with the span of his hand and weighs the mountains in a scale and the waters in the hollows. How are you going to compare that? You got to make sure you get good wood that doesn't rot because it really would be bad if your idol, if your God got moldy, right? Make sure you use pressure-treated lumber. Man, there's no comparison. You say, well, Sean, we're, we're Americans. We don't make idols. We don't do little wood statues and stuff, although I'm convinced that a generation from now, they're going to unearth our homes and find willow tree things and think that they were our household idols, right? Those little willow tree statues. They must have worshipped these things. I found them in all their homes, along with copious amounts of pumpkin spice. I don't understand, right? The reality is we may not make little tiny statues that we bow down to and offer rice and drinks and things like that, but our hearts are idol-making factories. At the core of who we are, we are always wanting to put something in the number one spot of our heart. We may not make it out of wood or out of metal, but the reality is we're all trying to make something. J.D. Greer says it this way, an idol is whatever takes the place of God in our lives. An idol is whatever we feel like we could not live without. It's what we think is an absolute necessity for life and happiness. Now, this is an important point. It's usually a good thing that we've made into a God thing that then becomes a bad thing. See, we often think about the idea that idols like, you know, we we know that we shouldn't worship, you know, alcohol or drugs or, you know, sex or whatever it is that we shouldn't make idols out of those things. But the problem is, Our hearts are so twisted and so deceived that we make idols out of our family. We make idols out of leaving a a legacy or out of trying to make sure that our kids have it better than we did. There's nothing wrong with the desire to make sure that your kids grow up in a world that's better than the one you grew up in. But the problem is when that becomes your driving aim and goal in life to where you'll sacrifice everything else to make sure that they've got it better. Because in the process, if you're not leading and modeling for them a relationship with Christ, then it doesn't matter what they've got. If they're not following Jesus, it's not worth it. See, our idols will always get tired and fall over. Our idols will always break under the strain. Some of you have done this. You've tried to, to put your heart into a relationship like your marriage. And you think, if, you know, if I just find the right person and I marry them, then they'll make sure all of my needs are met and you know, they'll Jerry Maguire it, you complete me, right? You know, the, the idea that, that my spouse or my partner will meet all of my needs, that just doesn't work. And what happens is marriage after marriage after marriage crumbles under the weight of the fact that we've tried to make that our God. I want my kids to succeed. I want my kids to do well in school. So I'm going to make sure that they're on every travel team and that they've got every opportunity to play in every tournament so that maybe they can get that scholarship and they can play ball in college and all these kind of things. And in the meantime, you've never modeled for them what it looks like to follow Jesus by being regularly part of a church. Your kids grow up, 
Odds are they don't get the scholarship, they don't play college ball, and they certainly don't play professional. Look at the numbers sometime. Your idol gets tired and it falls over. But the everlasting God who created the, the universe never gets tired. You can never put a load on him that's too much for him to bear. He never faints. He never gets weary. With that is also the idea, number four, that we see that there's nothing that God doesn't understand. There's nothing that God doesn't understand because he understands everything. Again, look back at verse 28. There is no limit to his understanding. There is nothing that God is confused about, perplexed about, or doesn't know or understand. I'll be real careful here in just a second, but I'm going to be honest. A few years ago, I saw a local pastor who posted that he did not believe with certainty that God knew who would be the next president. That's not okay. The God of the Bible is very clear that he knows and understands everything. There is nothing that God does not know. There is nothing that God doesn't see. So, Sean, you tell me that God knows who's going to win Tuesday? Absolutely. 100% with certainty, I know that God knows who the next president will be. Oh, cool, so I don't have to vote. No, you vote because that's the agency through which God works to be able to put that person in office. You, it's the same thing like God knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. But God's called me to be able to preach the gospel to others because I don't know who's going to be saved and I don't know who's not going to be saved. So out of an act of obedience and compassion, I share the gospel with other people so that they can know who Jesus is and he can save who he's going to save. He uses us to do that. But he understands and knows everything. It's that old kind of cliche statement that says, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Nothing ever dawned on him. God doesn't have shower thoughts, right? You know those, those moments of clarity you have when you're scrubbing out your hair? God doesn't have that. He is lucid all the time. He's on his A game, and he doesn't have to take nootropics to get there. That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how untraceable his ways. The depth of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. It's beyond searching out. Well, Sean, what if my guy loses on Tuesday? Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I don't know. I've got concerns about how things could go and things could get really bad one way or the other. But I know that even if they do, there is a God in heaven who has not lost control and will give us the ability to be able to live for him because he understands. It's not like God's gonna let something happen and go, oh man, I didn't expect that. I mean, I remember hearing one time about a farmer locally had donated blueberries to the school system. The school lunch folks at one of the elementary schools decided instead of like making them into blueberry muffins, they just gave the kids blueberries. Some of you, I just heard, some, you must be in charge of the laundry in your house. 
Because you can imagine when you give kids blueberries at school, what are they going to do? They're going to smash those things and going to throw them at each other. I mean, I didn't expect them to do that. That's never happened to God. I didn't expect they'd vote like that. I didn't expect them to win. We may not understand it. We may not know why. We may not like it. But God understands everything, and he is always 10,000 steps ahead of us. He knows what he's doing. He's never not known what's going on. In case you have any questions, in a few chapters, he would say this through Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, he says this. Remember what happened long ago? For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. I declared the end from the beginning, and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place, and I will do all in my will. How many of you guys like watching cop shows? Okay. I grew up watching detective shows and, you know, uh, like uh, Rockford Files and stuff like that on rerun. My dad had the full series of Hill Street Blues and all. You watch enough Law and Orders, and you can pick it out from the very beginning. You know how this is going to go. You know who the murderer is, you know. Like, you can pick it out. That's not what God's saying. He's not making an educated guess. He's saying, from the very beginning of a thing, I know exactly how this is going to end. His plan will always, always, always be taken out. So he's the everlasting God. He's the creator of all of the earth. He never grows tired or weary, and his understanding is inscrutable. So here's what makes it so incredible. In the midst of all of these things, Isaiah also says that that means he can give us strength. Look back at it again. This God who never grows weary, verse 29, he gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and grow weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. The God who never gets tired can give you the strength to honor him as a part of his kingdom no matter what's going on. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise up on wings like eagles. They'll walk and not grow weary. They'll, excuse me, they'll run and not become weary, walk and not faint. Bible teacher and author Warren Wearsby summed it up this way. As we wait before him, God enables us to soar when there is a crisis, to run when the challenges are many, and to walk faithfully in the day-by-day demands of life. It is much harder to walk in the ordinary pressures of life than to fly like an eagle in a time of crisis. Isn't that the truth? It would be easy sometimes for us to have one big cataclysmic moment where we stand for God and then the rest of life is easy. But waking up day after day after day after day, plodding along, honoring him when nothing seems to be changing, it doesn't seem to be getting better, it seems to be getting worse. Yeah, those who will wait on the Lord will renew their strength. When the crisis comes, they can rise above it, ride the current and soar far high above it. See what's going on. When danger comes and we need to run, God gives us the strength to run. And every day, he gives us the strength to walk. 
to walk with him, to honor him, to serve him the way we should. So as we look at the election and the thousand other concerns ahead of us, let's make sure we remember who our king actually is. In case we needed even greater reasons to follow him, remember that Jesus, as the eternal creator God in the flesh, he was willing to take on a physical limited body that got tired and weary. Sometimes we see Jesus taking naps. Other times we see Jesus' body breaking under the weight of a cross that he was called to carry. The God who does not grow weary or faint allowed himself to be so weakened by being beaten for us that he stumbled under the weight of his own cross and could no longer carry it. The God who is from everlasting in the flesh, the powerful God, the creator of all the earth, took on a human body so that he could die in our place. Again, Isaiah writing about this very same God would say this, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So this awesome creator, sustainer, wise, powerful God was willing to die in your place to take your sin upon himself so that you could live. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Just for a moment. If God is ultimately in charge, why not surrender to him today? Some of you have been trying to live life on your own. You've been trying to do life your way, and and it's just not working. The reality is it's because whatever you're doing has become an idol, and it cannot support the weight. So instead, turn to the one true God. Stop living life your way for your stuff and instead turn to following him. You do that through prayer. You just talk to God where you are. Tell him, God, I know that I've failed. I know that I've fallen. I know that I'm broken. But I know you're in charge. I need you to forgive me. I need you to give me life. I want to follow you. If you've made that decision, though, Are you acting like this is the God you serve or are you living and acting and reacting as if God was some tiny little weak being? Maybe tonight, if it's clear, I don't know what the weather's supposed to do, but maybe tonight you need to go out back and look up at the stars. Maybe you need to go back and look through those pictures of the beach from your vacation. See the expanse of the waters. Remember that no matter what happens, whether it's at school or with your health or with your relationships or with your finances or with the election or with anything else, to remember the God you ultimately serve. I'm going to take just a moment there. And again, look at who he is if you've been worrying, if you've been stressing, 
Ask his forgiveness. Ask for the strength to stand. I'll give you just a minute there with your head bowed and your eyes closed, and then I'll pray. Father, we confess that we have no idea what this week will hold. But we know that you're the God who declares the end of a thing from the beginning. We know that one day in eternity future, we'll look back on the events of this week or of our lives as a whole and see that it was just like grass that withers and flowers that fade. God, right now, through the media and through Facebook and through everything else, the kings of the earth seem awfully large. The judges seem awfully powerful. God, remind us again that you are in charge. And as the God who is in charge, we pray that you would move this week to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven for your will to be done. God, we pray that you would be merciful to us. Again, that you would protect life. You would protect freedom. That you would protect our nation. That if anyone has ulterior motives or plans to do harm to anyone as a result of this election, we pray that you would stop that dead in its tracks that you would move for your name and your glory. That when we fear, feel the fear beginning to rise, we would look again to who you are as the everlasting God, the creator of all of the earth, who never grows weary, whose understanding is inscrutable. That we would wait on you to move and that we would find strength. So we look to you. We give you this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.